want to welcome our listeners to another episode of the Energy Central Power Perspective Podcast. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Community Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager for Energy Central, located in Orlando, Florida. Matt, how are you doing today? Hi, Jason. Thanks for the intro and for guiding us along what's sure to be another great episode of uh, Utility Sector Insights. I've been looking forward to this episode for sure, and I'm eager to just sit back and learn from today's guest. Yes, I'm excited as well. Before we introduce our guest, a little background for our new listeners out there. Since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where utility professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member if you haven't already and join over 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. To join, visit www.energycentral.com and membership is free. With us today is truly a remarkable man in the energy domain. Charles Bayless has a distinguished career that spans five decades. Prior to retirement, he served as chairman, president, and CEO of Tucson Electric Power and Illinois Power. He held senior positions at Public Services New Hampshire, Consumers Power in various capacities, including council and director of the Nuclear Fuel Supply Division. He served on many boards, including the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, the Climate Institute, West Virginia American Water Company, and many more. He has received numerous awards and recognitions and holds a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering and Law degree from schools in West Virginia and an MBA from the University of Michigan. Charles has been a member of Energy Central since 2001 and has generated over 11,000 views of his work. Please welcome Charles Bayless. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be here. I'm happy to announce that it has stopped raining in Raleigh, where I currently live. Fantastic. And we're proud to have you on the call. Charles, thank you for your time. You may not be aware, but your writing has been extremely popular on Energy Central. You've accumulated more than 11,000 views of your work, so keep it up. Thank you. I was just going to say I enjoy writing. I've had a, a long career, and I've, you know, I, I feel that a lot of the things that I write about, like ACE and frequency bias and VARs, people really don't know about. They hear the word VARs thrown around. But, so I try to write things that are simple that explain what is a VAR to people uh, or what is ACE and frequency bias, things like that. We're thrilled to have you on Power Perspectives podcast, not only because of your long history in the energy field, but also your recent articles on ocean acidification and impacts of climate change, which we'll get to in a moment. Let's talk about the transportation sector. So the transportation sector is highly scrutinized regarding carbon emissions, and I read that you describe yourself as a climate nut. Many of us are becoming familiar with the idea of flight shame, or as the Swedes say, fliegskam. Do you think this will roll over to the mm -hmm. cruise industry and the broader hospitality industry? I think, look, my, my view always has been if you didn't understand climate change, you should retake freshman physics. It's very simple. Uh, you don't need anything more than freshman physics. And every single second, we are adding the extra heat of about three and a half World War II nuclear weapons to our atmosphere. And those are measurements. You don't even have to believe in climate change. 
you could look at the NASA measurements of energy coming in and energy going out. And the formula for the sphere area of the sphere is four thirds pi r squared. You figure out the area and you multiply it by 0.6 watts per square meter and figure out how many watts that is. And uh, you can you can quickly do the calculation. It's about 10th grade math. And so you know, ocean acidification, I always joke, doesn't even require college. You can do that with high school chemistry. If you know the partial pressure of the atmosphere, of the gas in the atmosphere, the temperature of the water, you can know the solubility. And so we've got these two evil twins, as I call them, that are marching along and we're not nearly doing enough to stop them. So I think that everybody, uh, and, and I think that you are starting to see people like the cruise industry. I noticed that Delta Airlines today has agreed to spend $1 billion on sustainability. Uh, BP just came out and said that in their processes, they're going to go to zero carbon emissions, but of course they're still selling oil. But we have got to make a, a move to uh, renewables. And I think more and more people are starting to look at sort of the shame part of it and, and trying to cut back. Not nearly enough are, and we've got a long way to go. Charles, despite being retired, you seem to stay quite busy discussing various topics in your field of energy and the environment. Uh, I took a particular interest in your post on Energy Central titled, Nuclear Energy, Our Best Weapon Against Climate Change. You write about the necessity of maintaining nuclear energy and the ramifications, such as increased utility industry carbon emissions, should we shut down nuclear power prematurely. You seem to be in agreement that the future of nuclear is in doubt, but not until we replace carbon with non-carbon alternatives. Can you comment more about the paper? Sure, I think it's one of those things, you, when you look at a plane crash and you get on a plane the next day, you're worried about it, even though statistically, my gosh, there's nothing to worry about. If you look at the total people added, killed by nuclear, go back and look at Fukushima, you look at Chernobyl, um, I don't think anybody, maybe statistically, one person was killed by the extra radiation out of Three Mile Island. The radiation out of Mount St. Helens was thousands of times higher than Three Mile Island. But anyway, you look at the total number of people killed and probably multiply that by 10. And then you look at the total people killed by one heat wave in France was over 14,000. You look at the, the total people killed around the world now by oceans rising and swamping farmlands and just heat deaths in general. We've got to do something about climate change. And about half of our non-carbon energy comes some nuclear power. Nuclear power for the last 20, 30 years has been 20% of the power produced in the United States. And to shut it down to me is just insane. I mean, I'm co-chair of the Climate Institute and I look at everything through the lens of we've got to stop carbon. So nuclear power is right now one of our leading sources of non-carbon power. The problem is the markets that we have set up, like PJM and things, you've got the capacity market, but the energy markets, The what happens in an energy market is with wind and solar, you shove the whole generation stack out and it decreases the prices paid to everybody. In other words, if you had a 20,000 megawatt load and the last plant operating was three cents, then everybody would get three cents. With a lot of wind and solar, you shove all those plants and so the next plant now operating may be 2.8. 
So suddenly everybody goes from 3 to 2.8. Nuclear can't operate when you're in an energy environment. But because we don't consider the externalities of climate change, markets can't handle externalities. Only governments can. But we seem so intent on letting the market do it, and we neglect externalities. I had a paper on that also, um, that, you know, the nuclear can't operate. So I think it's foolish that we're shutting down nukes. Now, I think the salvation of nuclear will be the small modular reactors. If you look at one of the things that really changed our industry, it was the jet engine. The airlines were getting tired of stopping in Bangor, Maine, every time they came back from Europe with the 707. The 707 engine was probably the most efficient machine ever invented for converting jet fuel into noise and wasted energy. They were horribly inefficient. And so they invented what's called the high bypass engine, which took that extra energy going out the back and they put a turbine there to capture that, ran a shaft through the front and it drives a propeller. And that's that big fan you see on the front of a 777 engine or, or a 7.6 or a 7.5. Any, anything time you look at one of those big new jets, it's got that huge fan on the front. When you're on a 777, you're on a propeller-driven airplane. 90% of the thrust comes from that big fan in the front. So the energy going out the back is now converted to rotating energy. So then some bright young engineers thought, aha, well, what if we take the fan off and we'll put a turbine on there? our generator, and we'll make a so-called aeroderivative gas turbine. Suddenly, we went from building coal plants where every plant was a one-off design, and they took six years to build. Suddenly, you could call GE. Back then, it was Stuart and Stevenson, and say, send me an LM6000. And so we went from an era of one-off plants to mass-produced plants, and it totally decreased the cost of generation. And it also opened it up to new competition. You no longer had to have $2 billion to build a power plant. Totally changed the industry. I have the hope that the small modular reactors will do that. We'll go from an era of large reactors that are built on site, do ask Southern how much fun they're having right now with their reactor. And we're going to an era where you, they're factory built. They're gonna be much cheaper. You can bring them out and install them. You can put six of them on one header and run two turbines and take one plant out for maintenance. It's really going to help. So I, I have great hopes for the small modular reactors that nuclear can make a comeback. I mean, would I like to see all wind and solar? Yes. But that's really going to take a lot uh, to get there because of their variability. Charles, if I can ask a, a follow-up question here. So that sounds like there's a lot of reasons uh, to be hopeful and, and optimistic about the future of nuclear from the technological standpoint. But obviously, one of some of the limiting factors is in the area of regulation or, you know, political will and all that being tied to the public opinion about nuclear and its relative safety. Do you think in the next decade or so that we'll start to see public opinion shift more in favor of the nuclear industry thanks to you know, car it's carbon neutrality and, and the relative numbers that, that you were talking about earlier? I think we can. I hope we will. Uh, I think we can because I think more and more people are suddenly waking up to climate change. You know, if one of the things about externalities is that 
if you look at economics and you talk about externalities, that there's no market for it. And there's nothing that the market can do. Simply, you know, if, if there's a chemical producer and that chemical producer sells a chemical to a company, but in the process emits another chemical into a river and that goes downstream and handles a third party, harms a third party, that's an externality. But there is no market for that. There's nothing that third party can do down there to get that chemical company to stop other than government regulation. And so we're getting more and more regulations. But one of the interesting things about climate change is all these little CO2 emissions in their, on their own are infinitesimal. I don't care if Southern Duke and AEP stopped emitting carbon 100% tomorrow, it's not gonna make a lot of difference because of the rest of the world. You gotta get everybody on board. And so I think what we're going to see is, and, and all these emissions add together, that little chemical may only hurt that one person in the river, but climate's hurting everybody. And I think it's gonna become more and more apparent as we go along to everybody what's happening. So I think then that you're gonna get more acceptance from nuclear, especially if we get the small modular reactors that are inherently safe. I mean, we went for a long time and of course Three Mile Island clearly didn't help. But if we get a reactor that if it has a, I'm gonna say loca, but loss of coolant accident, nothing happens, then that's a far different situation. But I think that people have got to make trade-offs. Do you want carbon or do you want nuclear? And in my opinion, nuclear is far safer. I, I think, you know, the British Royal Academy said in the four degree centigrade world, it's a hellish future that even the limits for human adaptation are going to be exceeded in many parts of the world. And we're already seeing, you know, if you look at any study on, on where birds live, look at where the center of gravity of the bird population was 50 years ago. It's now a couple 300 miles north. Um, we're seeing all sorts of species that are having to move and we're, we're approaching mass extinctions. The, the change in carbon in the atmosphere is greater than any natural change that we've ever seen. Charles, let's continue with the conversation regarding some of your additional writings, including your, uh, the topic about ocean acidification. Uh, you know, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your writing. You, you take a very complex scientific and, you know, topic and you make it uh, manageable and digestible for, you know, the, the general public. Um, even though you're writing it for, even though you're writing it for a, a primed audience on Energy Central, it's still even for someone like me, understandable and and uh, and very sort of practical and of course timely. Uh, do you feel that topics like this in the writing of this manner is something that we need more of to explain to the public? Uh, to get them to understand so that they um, take more ownership or get more actively involved and aware of what's going on, making, it's, making this topic simply more accessible for a wider audience so that we have more of the public involved in, in, in taking action based on your writings and such writings like yours? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if I, if I could ask for one thing, I would be to get that paper on climate change and ocean acidification to every high school and college student in the nation. Um, so that they can see what's happening. And we're seeing that. You look at organizations like Sunrise. And uh, when somebody, I forget who it was, once said that uh, reasonable people adapt to the world. It was George Bernard Shaw. 
Okay, unreasonable people try to adapt the world to themselves. Therefore, unreasonable people, or no, therefore all progress comes from unreasonable people because they're going to try to change the world. So I think you are seeing a lot uh, of people, especially the young people. You know, one of the thing about the old externalities from a chemical plant is they flowed down the river, as I said, and they harmed people down the river. CO2 from all over the world is aggregating and it's causing these effects that handle everybody or that harm everybody. And so what's happening is in the past, the politician heard primarily from the chemical company because there might be 600, there might be a you know, million people in a state and only 500 of them were harmed. They might complain the other million didn't. But the chemical company would say, boy, if we cut this out, it's going to cost a million dollars and this many jobs. So the, the scales were kept towards the company. Now you're starting to tip it back the other way because all these effects are aggregating and causing many, many people to stand up. So the politicians are really caught in the middle. So I think you're gonna see that. But we've got to get people to start understanding and start making personal choices. And I think, look at movements like Sunrise, and a lot of people think they're unreasonable, and my feeling is that's great. It's you know, what it takes to change the world is some unreasonable people. Continuing with your writing, Charles, what about um, your most recent article about the physics behind climate change? Again, you've written it in a uh, uh, down-to-earth level, so it would appeal to a wider audience, and I, and I commend you on that. So when, once again, you've unpacked some important lessons without getting lost in the weeds. Uh, you touch upon the notion of climate risk on society, and in particular, the impact between the rich and poor. Can you give us a summary of what, you, what was discussed yeah. here, and has your opinion changed since you wrote this paper? What new conclusions have you drawn, if any, since once, once this was first published? Well, again, back to the science. The science behind climate change is absolutely trivial. I, the way I like to start on climate change is I, I joke to people that I'm sure you've often wondered why the temperature of the moon is about 10 degrees below and the temperature of the earth is 59 degrees. They're both the same distance from the sun, but yet one's 10 below. And it goes back into the 1820s when the famous scientist and mathematician Joseph Fourier said, I think it's because the Earth's atmosphere acts like a blanket and traps the heat. And it wasn't until 1897 that Savante Arenas, who won the Nobel Prize, did the mathematics, because by then he had the Stefan Boltzmann equation to show how the Earth's atmosphere trapped the heat. So if you don't believe in climate change, you're only about 123 years behind science. But so it is out there. I think that it does harm the poor much more than the rich. And when I'm, I'm lumping ocean acidification in here also, I mean, you're going to see countries like Bangladesh that are just overrun with water. The whole, you know, Vietnam and things like that are going to lose massive coastal areas. And the rich can pay for air conditioning. And like, you know, I will be considered one of the upper, I don't know if I'm rich, rich. I certainly don't think I am. Look at Bill Gates. But uh, but, but certainly more well-to-do people can, can pay for air conditioning and they can pay for things to mitigate the exposures, but other people can't. And I think that worldwide, you're, and you're going to see things like, you know, the, the vector-borne diseases, mosquitoes that are carrying malaria and things. They're going to start at some point to move into the southern U.S. 
and you're going to see all sorts of things like that. So I, I continue to believe uh, it, you know, the effects on everybody are going to be simpler, but some people are similar, but many people can mitigate them more than others can. So Charles, you know, you're on, you're, like we said, you're retired and you're, you're keeping yourself incredibly busy. I, I would love to know what you're writing about next. Would you, would you be willing to share or give some insight to the audience on what we can expect from you as your next topic of discovery? I'm working on one on externalities. It's a much longer paper on the, the, the economics of externalities and how they affect politics and, uh, and economics. Uh, I'm just starting one on what we were talking about a few minutes ago about uh, the deaths from climate change and ocean acidification and the deaths from nuclear power, trying to do the research into that to find out what the facts are. I don't, I, you know, I have a feel for it, but I don't have the actual, actual numbers yet. And uh, I'm thinking about writing one on uh, uh, generator inertia and how, how do all the generators hang together? If you look, in a power system, we have phase shifts and transmission lines, but neglecting the phase shifts and transmission lines, all the generators have to go positive at the same time, and all the generators have to go negative at the same time. And there's thousands of generators, and we have no centralized control. We don't have any signal going out to tell them. And so how does that happen? Well, there's a very precise, we say it's, it's the force, it's used the force, and it is a force, it's an electromagnetic force that keeps them all in sync. And, but they can come out of sync if the things just don't work right. So I'm thinking about writing a paper on that. Charles, I, I wanted to go back to the, the climate change topic real quick, if you don't mind. So no, for, right for, for those out there who are interested and understand the science and the implications of climate change and you know, the en indus energy industry's effect on it, what do you think is the most effective action they can be taking at this point in time? You know, you, you mentioned earlier the Sunrise Movement. Is this type of organizational effort the best way to influence change? What, what should individuals be, be looking to do? Well, I think on a personal basis, it's conservation. Conservation to me is always the cheapest form of carbon uh, reduction. It costs, this is the Amory Levins, Amory, I've known Amory for I don't know how many years, but it's the Amory, the megawatt concept. If it's cheaper to save a watt than it is generate a watt, well, it's also cheaper to save carbon than it is to remediate it after it's generated. So I think, you know, the first thing is electric vehicles, uh, it's LED light bulbs, it's high energy, high efficiency, and you've done work on that, Matt, and, and appliance efficiency. So I think that's, you know, better insulation in your house, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the things I would love to see is building codes, but again, here, it's a, this is another externality thing. You don't have a whole bunch of homeowners running around saying, let's have better building codes. But when you try to put in building codes that have R whatever in the ceiling and walls and high energy appliances, you're going to get massive pushback from the builders because it's going to drive the cost up. And so you get a concentration of forces on one side versus hardly anything on the other side. You know, people just don't run in and say, we've got to have better energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So but anyway, that's the first line of defense. I think the second is to lobby public officials and tell them we've got to have renewable energy. We've got in, in power companies. Uh, everybody can find good reasons not to do it. 
Uh, you know, the, the, this plant's already been built. It's going to cost a lot to change it. Well, it's going to cost a lot not to change it, but that's going to be boring for our grandchildren. And so I think that, you know, lobbying public officials and, and getting uh, state laws and things like that written, because markets can't handle externalities. The market is not going to handle climate change unless you set up a market, but that takes a law like we've done for socks. If you set up a cap and trade market or a tax carbon dioxide, that will have an effect. Charles, I want to thank you for a fantastic discussion. We will have to get your insight again, perhaps a year from now, to see if we've made any progress. You can always reach Charles Bayless through the Energy Central platform, where he welcomes your questions and comments. Energy Central's podcast, The Power Perspectives, would not be possible if it were not for our devoted sponsors, including Wes Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest investor-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to preparing a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise covering topics like aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployment, and industry disruptors like DERs and cybersecurity. To ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute. ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant, a leading global provider of consulting services to the public and commercial markets with expertise in energy, sustainability, and infrastructure. To Oracle Utilities, providing best-in-class utilities management solutions to improve reliability, service, and safety for electric, water, and natural gas companies. And to C-Power. At C-Power, we help customers make the decisions today that guide them across the bridge to energy's future. Where, where will your energy take you? For more information, visit C-Power. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com and see you next time at the Energy Central Power Perspective Podcast. <music>